Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. you to be seated. We're going to say hi to each other in a moment. And while you're seating, I'm going to call Yulia to come to the stage with her parents. And I want to introduce our church family to some very special people today. Come here, Yulia. This is Yulia McKenzie. Her husband, Ryan, her children are sitting in the auditorium with us here today. And Yulia is from Ukraine. (laughs) Yulia and Ryan and their children are part of our church family. Many of you know them and recognize them. We learned recently that her parents were still in Ukraine. And a few weeks ago, they escaped. And for three days, Yulia did not hear anything from her parents, not wondering, not knowing where they were, if they were safe, if they were okay, if they were alive or if they were dead. She got word that they had made it to Budapest in Hungary. And we, that's where we, Comox Pentecostal Church, got involved in the story and said, we're going to be praying, we're going to find ways to help. And because of your generosity and participation, this week we were able to be part of bringing Sasha and Tatiana to Canada safely. So would you join me in welcoming? The hope and the plan is for them to settle safely in Canada and to make their home in the Comox Valley with the Mackenzie family. And we've helped get them here, but how many of you think that we could help them settle here as well? Yeah. They have a long journey in front of them. They left their home and all of their possessions in Ukraine. They need to rebuild life, and we're here to help them. So we're going to begin our journey with them today. We're going to pray over them. They're going to begin taking English lessons so that they can learn to meet you and you can learn to have conversation with them as well. But today, it was just a wonderful opportunity because they were able to arrive this week for us to welcome them. And I'm going to ask that we pray over them together. So could we stand for this moment of prayer? Father, in the strong name of Jesus... We extend a welcome from the Comox Valley and from Comox Pentecostal Church to Sasha and Tatiana. Thank you for protecting them. Thank you for getting them out of a place of danger into safety. Thank you for their safe arrival into Canada. Father, we pray for their fellow countrymen. We pray for the nation of Ukraine, for peace and for protection, and for the end of war. Now, Father, as Sasha and Tatiana begin to restart a new life here in Canada, we commit to support them, to pray for them, to help them feel welcome, and to know that they belong 
in our church family and in our community. We're praying for peace on them, peace upon their friends and loved ones that were left behind. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray your great blessing on them together in the strong name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. I want to let you know, church family, that you can still give towards our Ukraine support anytime that you like. And from this moment forward, a lot of that is going to be directed towards helping this couple get established here. Would you join me in welcoming them one more time as they head to the seats? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can be seated again. There's a lot of stand up and sit down in church, you know. It's just what we do. There's one of, the, one of the best courses in Bible school is how to say amen the right amount of times in the service as a pastor. Amen and amen, you know. And then please be seated. And that's one way you can say it. The other way is God bless you, please be seated. And, so, and then there's the third, yeah, you may be seated, which, you know, so they give us some options. I failed one of the tests, but Laura, she compensates for that for me. And our team is growing. And today we have the privilege of introducing to you our new youth pastors, Clay and Chantille. So we're going to call them to the stage here. Would you join us in showing a welcome to them? Chantille asked if she could preach today. And I said, that'll have to wait for another time. Um, no, she doesn't. She's not too thrilled to hold a microphone at this point. But... Um, I wanted them to have the opportunity to say hello to you. Between services, we're going to have churros and coffee outside, so I know many of you would love to introduce yourselves and welcome them also. Clay and Chantille were part of a uh, quite a long process with us. Several months ago, our leadership council and staff began working on a new staffing expansion plan for this year. We went through a great process with several candidates and multiple interviews, lots of reference work, lots of prayer, and your participation in many ways also. And God has led us to this opportunity. And many of you would have received our e-bulletin this week and read a little bit of a bio and introduction from Clay and Chantille to all of you. But we wanted you to have the chance to meet them in person as well. So Clay, why don't you just say a few things about yourself? I presume you're still excited to be here. So Tell us why. Yeah. Yeah. So me and Chantille are super excited to be here with everybody here today and with everybody online, including my family. So. <laughs> four years now preparing to go to ministry together. The time has finally come. Unfortunately, I leave today and go write some final exams. Um, but I'm so excited. I mean, they're both so excited to be moving to the Valley and to be able to call this church home and get to know every single one of you, especially the youth students in here. I'm so excited to get to know you guys and hang out with you guys. And we just can't begin to explain how excited we are. Like, driving up yesterday, we were like, this is home now. Like, we're driving to our home. We're going to go meet our family now, our church family. So we're so excited to be here, and please don't be shy to come up and talk to us. Please forgive us if we don't remember names, but we're excited to have some churros and get to know you guys and be a part of this church. We are so excited. Yeah, wonderful. So Clay and Chantille are engaged right now. They've been dating for four years. They get married this summer, and we're going to find out a time and a way for them to move here a little later this year and begin their journey with us. They've already secured housing in the community. How many of you know that's a miracle? Wow, yes. So we're so thankful for that, and uh, I want us to pray for them. So, you know, stand up, sit down, stand, stand up. Let's pray for Clay and Chantille as Clay 
wraps up his uh, final exams, and then as they get married in July, we just want to pray our blessing over them as they prepare to move into our community. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the wonderful ways that you work in our lives and in our world and in our community. Thank you for your work in our church. Thank you for this opportunity for our staff and church to continue to grow. The vision is for our youth and our children and our young adults, and the vision is for the 12,000 youth and children in our community. Father, thank you for your anointing and your call upon this couple. We're praying for grace over this final season of wrapping up school and wedding plans. Father, we pray a blessing over their wedding day and their marriage, Father. Prosper them wonderfully in all ways, spiritually, relationally, and in every other area that matters in life. And Father, we look forward with open hearts to receiving them in this community and to our team. So we pray your blessing over them this year and every year forward as they join us in reaching your valley here with the greatest message on earth, the message of Jesus. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, so now you've been standing, and uh, if some of you want to mob them in just a moment, I'm going to let you say hi to people around you. Those who are nearby might want to go find them and give them a hug or a hello. Well, as you heard us uh, give hint to earlier on, we do have churros. How many of you have never had a churro before? There's a few of you uh, holdouts that you just resisted churros last time for some reason, but they're available to you today. Uh, churros and some Milano's coffee after the service. We're going to have a great time together. You'll get to meet Clay and Chantil there also. Clay hails from the booming metropolis of Winnipeg, Manitoba. And so he, we've converted another prairie boy. Uh, he is proud to be from the prairies, but I know happy to be here. A few important uh, church family announcements for you. We've been asking you to save the date for our church camp for many weeks now, uh, July 14 through 17. But we're pleased to let you know that today, can everybody say today? Registration is now open, so you can go online and reserve uh, your spot that you can join with us. I can't say that you're reserving your camp spot, but you're reserving a spot. We have limited space at the camp, so if you want to be sure you can join us, please do sign up. All the information about costs, etc., are online. How many of you were at our camp last year? We had a great time. There was about 70 or so people from our church family. We had last camper standing, which was big fun. We had uh, speakers, etc., I'm also really happy to let you know, and this is going to matter to about half of you who have been part of this church for over 10 years or so, our speakers to the adults this year are Mike and Castina Pennington, who will be coming with their family to join us for our camp this summer. We're going to have a great time together. So please uh, go ahead and register. I'll even let you register while I'm preaching. If you want to go on your phone and do that, uh, I know you're either looking at your Bible on your phone or you're registering for camp. That's okay. Next week, we begin a new preaching series called... Jesus in the bedroom. Jesus in the bedroom. We're going to talk about relationships and the wonders and beauty of sexuality according to God's design. And with that, we're going to offer three marriage pop-up groups. So sort of small term, uh, small group experiences. You don't have to sign up for a life group for life. You can just sign up to a pop-up group for five or six weeks. There's three great topics that will be covered in small groups 
beginning the week after next Sunday, and I hope that you will consider joining. There's lots of information on our website and our e-bulletin as well. You can click to sign up for one of the three groups, Marriage Remodel, Closer Connection, which is about communication and his needs, her needs. They're going to be excellent and helpful. How many of you know marriage is super easy, right? You know, hey, Clay and Chantel are getting married, so just, it's super easy. No, even the healthiest, happiest marriage in the room requires very intentional work, love, forgiveness, all the gritty stuff that makes life hard. (laughs) But it's good and it's worth it. Every marriage, whether struggling or never been better, needs a tune-up. And so we want to encourage you to engage in one of these three pop-up groups. Also next Sunday, in the afternoon, we have what's called Choose Your Own Adventure, three outdoor activities that we're going to have happening at various locations around the Comox Valley that we invite you to pick one and join in with others from our church family hanging out outside, either playing disc golf, at a beach fire, or fishing. There's more information online about that. You don't really have to sign up, but it helps us. If we do know some numbers, we can get a few things ready for you. And so head to our website and join us for that. Also, we're gonna roll a video for you. How many of you have already had a special Easter meal this weekend? See hands? Yeah? Some. How many of you say, actually, we never have an Easter meal of any kind of special? I remember one time my aunt saying, uh, my son just put up his hand. Wait. Uh, <laughs> and I usually cook. That's really... Ooh. My aunt one time announced to the family very proudly she was doing hot dogs for Easter. I thought that was cool when I was young, but we had to... Um, 
of turkey that my grandma, I love my grandma. Uh, she is getting to the age and stage of life where now I think I'm safe to say uh, her turkey was always dry. Um, <laughs> love her, love her, love her, love her. Thankful for every wonderful meal we had at her home. How many people are turkey at, at Easter people? Some of you, yeah. Uh, fish at Easter, is that anybody? Um, yeah. Beef. Nothing from the bovine. Yeah. Oh, there's some beef there. Good. Uh, ham. Isn't that funny? Look at all the ham hens. Um, is that, is, I haven't looked into it. Is it because of old covenant to new covenant? Are we like, finally, thank you, Jesus. You know, we've still got bacon in our teeth from breakfast. Now we're ready for ham for lunch. <laughs> Jesus made a new way for us, and he even changed the diet restrictions if you read through the Bible, and ham is now something we can celebrate, and bacon on top even sounds better. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of great options that can be enjoyed over Easter. I don't know about you and some of your first Easter memories. For me, of course, there was some of that chewy turkey, but I do remember being given a huge chocolate bunny. Did you ever get one of those, like a really big one? It was in a box behind cellophane. It was like, wow, and I I was little, and I, you know, I didn't... I wasn't able to sort of compute everything that was going on. I just assumed this is all chocolate. And then you open it up only to find it's hollow. <laughs> I was real disappointed. So you start realizing that the, the chocolate bunnies that are about this big are actually the ones you want because that's all chocolate. Now, I love the ones with peanut inside. I don't, do, they, do they do that anymore? Is it too dangerous? I'm not sure. But I used to shred it and put it over ice cream. It was very, very good. I mean, it, you feel weird every time you're eating this beautiful little bunny and you're putting it through a grater and all that. But delicious. <laughs> As a church family, we've concluded last week a series out of the book of First Peter. And as we were approaching Easter, I couldn't help but begin wondering, what was Peter's first Easter like? And so I want us just to spend a little bit of time exploring his experience of Easter. And I think some of us can identify with certain elements that were alive in his story, his experience of Easter. Those of you who journeyed with us through the book of First Peter, you'll remember this at the very beginning of the book, verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Can you say new birth? He's given us new birth into a living hope. How did he do this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What in the world did Peter mean here? (laughs) I mean, it's a bunch of nice church language all stuffed together. It makes us happy, and the more churchy we are, the more we're like, amen, or we want to clap about a verse like that. But what in the world did he mean? Is it just a bunch of Easter speak and sentiment? Or was Peter actually referring to an experience from his own life? He talks about a new birth occurring in his life because of the resurrection of Jesus. So is that fable or is there reality that you and I could lean the weight of our whole lives upon in that? I think when Peter says that there's a new birth, I think it's as if he's saying, There's something about the resurrection of Jesus that somehow brought about, it's as if I got a new life. 
And for some of you in the room today, some of you joining us at home, you know what I mean. There was a moment that it wasn't just sort of like you were able to summon all of your best intentions and your willpower and make change for yourself. You've seen your best efforts there fail. And yet on the other side of that, along came someone to sort of pick you up off of your weakest and worst moment. And there was like a new start. There was like rebirth, new life. So I want us to look through, kind of as rapidly as I can, um, a, a few of the elements of Peter's experience of the Easter story. For some of you, this is review. You're familiar with elements of Easter and Easter story. I want you just to enter into some of this with me. We're going to spend most of our time in actually the way that John goes through the story. The reason why is because we're going to land and spend a bit of time in John chapter 21. So if you're the kind of person that turns and wants to know where we're going, you can go to John 21. If you want to follow along with me, go to John chapter 13. Why John 13? This is kind of like a Last Supper scene. Some of you have heard that language from other places in the Gospels. Jesus gathers his closest followers and friends together for a meal. Have you ever had a family meal and you've got like all these romantic ideas about how special and wonderful it's going to be, but then when it happens, it's quite chaotic? <laughs> I, if you look at like artwork on the Last Supper, a lot of it represents our dream family dinner, right? It's like Everybody's peaceful, there's halos everywhere, everybody loves each other. And as I was looking at some artwork this week, I found this piece. And I thought, you know, maybe that was a little more true to Jesus' experience of the Last Supper. Just these unruly disciples that he's invested time into for the last three years, and they're still unruly. There's still chaos around him. The dinner isn't unfolding the way he had hoped, but there was so much promise and beauty and potential built into it. What was it like for Peter? What was his experience like in the midst of that as well? In, in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says this at that table. He says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now that's, I mean, try that at your family dinner today, tomorrow, one of you is going to betray me, you know. Let's talk inheritances. One of you is going to betray me. This is going to change everything. No. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another, no doubt, right? At a loss to know which of them he meant. I'm sure all of them had ideas in their mind. Oh, you know, and they're giving the signal with their eyes and like, you know, him. Um, one of them, listen to the language John uses here. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John, he's got a bit of a complex, it seems. He thinks he's pretty special. Like, he's trying to passively, uh, you know, let people know who is most important to Jesus, but he hardly ever names himself. But you, when you read between the lines through the book of John, he's talking about himself a lot. Like, I really love John. I think he's a really interesting guy. He writes well, but he's kind of just like, hey, there was this guy, I'm not going to mention any names here, who Jesus really, really loved the most. So that's what he's doing here. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, Simon Peter. So remember, we're trying to follow Simon's experience. There's interesting play that we start observing between Simon, Peter, and John. Peter motioned to this disciple, meaning John, and said to him, ask him which one he means. So this is John's way of saying, I know everybody thinks Peter's important because the church was built upon him. He was like the first pope and everything. But the pope turned to me and said, since you know that Jesus loves you most, you talk to him about this one. 
Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread and then uh, when I have dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. How did Peter feel watching that unfold? I mean, I bet there was a little bit of relief, like, okay, not me. (laughs) But there would have been like, uh uh-oh, and disappointment and perhaps fear, some anxiety creeps in. If you flip a little further ahead to verse 36, the story carries on. Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that to God at an altar or in a, you know, at your bedside? God, I would die for you. I mean, this is bold, courageous stuff for Peter to sort of proclaim to Jesus in that moment. I think he meant real well. And I think that you and I have had really meaningful intentions wrapped up in things we've said to God before also. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter comes out of the gate, unloading all these wonderful promises on Jesus. And it's hard for us to hear maybe in this moment. Jesus responds with, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And I bet, I mean, as you get to know Peter, you think, I, probably on the inside, he's like, okay, I know you're God, and I know you think you know that you're right, but there's no way I'm going to do that. Probably a lot of feelings stirring around in Peter, full of great intentions. From the Last Supper, we, we changed scenes to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes there to pray after that final meal. He had gone there often with his followers and friends to pray, and this time it was a little different. He brought Peter, James, and John, remember their dynamic, he brought them a little closer and he said, I want you to watch and pray. And if you're Peter, if you know anything about Peter, he's probably like, for sure, I'm on it, Lord. And so the Lord goes and prays, and what happens? He comes back, Peter's asleep. Jesus wakes him up, says, couldn't you keep, you know, couldn't you keep your attention going for, for even an hour? Come on, pray, watch, pray. Peter's like, of course, of course, of course. And he falls back asleep one more time. Peter is full of great intentions, but keeps failing to meet what he's promised he might be able to do for God. I don't know if any of us can relate with moments like that. Later on in that same chapter, chapter 18, While Jesus is praying, while the disciples are sleeping, all of a sudden Judas comes into the scene and betrays Jesus with a kiss. I've always wondered, Peter writes at the end of his letter, 1 Peter, he says, greet one another with what? Anybody remember? A kiss of love. I've wondered when he wrote that, he had seen a kiss of betrayal before. and He's like, there's a different way that we should be greeting one another with real love love. And when he was even thinking about his failure in prayer, I wonder if that influenced some of his letter writing, because a few times he talks about, make sure you're alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. Peter remembers what it was like to fail. He remembers what it was like to witness one of his close friends who was with him for three years turn on the Lord and sell him out. The feelings would have been so difficult, I'm sure, for him. 
Judas betrays Jesus. Peter feels scared, I think. I think he feels disappointed. I think anger rises up in his heart. And then he resorts to something. I don't think it was premeditated, but he resorts to violence. You should see this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Can we get that? Yeah. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's how they word it. One of those with Jesus drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest. In John, so John, again, remember, it seems like he has a bit of an ax to grind with Peter, like he's feeling inferior or whatever, so for whatever reason. Then Simon Peter, just in case anybody missed out on who was doing this, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. So Peter reads John's gospel. He's like, John, why you got to do me like that? That's how we know it was Peter who did that. I'm sure if John hadn't written it, we probably would have been able to guess. Moving from Gethsemane, Jesus is arrested and he's taken and he's put on trial. But when you follow the trial of Jesus, is it really just the trial of Jesus or is it also the trial of Peter too? If you're with me in the text, you can go to chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Who do you think the another disciple was? is John. He's like, I'm not going to put my name in there. Like, I don't need this to be about me. Look at what Peter does here. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because the disciple was known to the high priest, remember, John's like, I'm an insider, so I can, you know, I can get around. Because I, I was known, or because he was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. So he's throwing some shade at Peter here. Peter didn't have enough connections, so he didn't get inside. He had to wait outside. And look what happened to poor Peter because of it. Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, he has to say it again, right? Came back, spoke to the girl on duty, and brought Peter in. He's like, see, you're glad you know me, right? So Peter gets in. Why did John have to waste for writing that? He's got something he's trying to say here, I suppose. Verse 17. You are not one of the disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Verse 18, this is interesting that John includes this, but he does. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing there warming himself. Now, in John's text, he takes a break from that first denial, and I'm sure the first time Peter read through the book of John, he's like, nice, you only got one of mine in there. Thank you so much. But he takes a break, and then, skip down to verse 25, what does John go right back to? He's like, we just took a little break there so that I could dive back into your failure again, Peter. Verse 25, as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of them, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear, uh, whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it. Now, that's where John stops there in that moment. I think it's a little bit interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they're describing the same story, they all include emotional detail that Peter leaves. He breaks down and he weeps bitterly. So, of course, what does John write? And again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. End of story. No motion. Peter is callous. Peter has no heart. I don't know that it was going well between Peter and John in their relationship for some reason. Of course, Peter had deep emotional experiences in that moment. I want you to imagine with me the kind of trauma that was built into the memory of this experience 
for Peter. Like, I don't know if you've been through something traumatic before in your own life. Sometimes it's when something happens to you or when you've done something that almost immediately you regret. When you experience trauma, it's as if your body or psychology is just taking pictures of everything going on around you and storing it inside of you. And so Peter is absorbing everything that's just gone on in this traumatic experience of his own doing, his own failure. And he's remembering there's a fire. There's the smell of smoke. There's Jesus. We know he's nearby from the other gospel stories because one of the writers even says that at the moment Peter denied Jesus the third time, what happened? Jesus turned and looked directly at him. So this is like imprinted into Peter. Story changes scenes again now towards the crucifixion of Christ in chapter 19. What do you think that felt like for Peter? On top of his own sort of regret and trauma, now he's witnessing the one to whom he's given his life for the last three years be killed in front of him. And with every dying breath that Jesus takes, Peter's witnessing his own hopes die too. There's despair, discouragement, bewilderment, confusion. In chapter 19, if you're following through the text with me, go look in verse 25. Again, John has to include something because I think he's a little jealous that Peter became the first pope. So he says this, near the cross, Jesus, uh, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and his, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, now we know that Peter's probably right in this scene as well, but of course John isn't including that detail, but he is pointing out that Jesus is indicating, here's who I trust with God's mom. And he says this, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, who we know as John, took her into his home. Probably Peter's like, ah, I wasn't even trusted by Jesus in that moment. And of course, John was. Story progresses towards not a tragic ending, but an exciting new beginning. Rumors start spreading that there's an empty tomb. And if you flip to chapter 20, it says this, early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started running for the tomb. And then John includes this detail. This is a little hard to read. I found this one online, but you can follow along with it as well. Both of them, this is verse four in the ESV. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) Wonderful. Good for you, John. So you're not the Pope, but you can run faster than the Pope. Good for you. So that's verse four. Thank you for including that, John. Verse five, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, John has to say, who was behind him? (laughs) Uh, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Isn't that an interesting detail? John's not like... um, 
He's not put, throwing any shade there. It's an interesting detail because, you know, neat freaks like to point, well, even Jesus, in the rush of his resurrection, you know, he folded everything before he left, so you ought to clean your room. That's not necessarily the point, although it maybe, you know, has some merit. Why does that matter? Because if Jesus' body was stolen, no robber's going to be like, wait, we've got to clean up first. Let's fold everything, and then we go away with the body. This is an evidence of resurrection tucked into the New Testament. That when God was raised from the dead, he took the time to fold his cloth, and then out he went alive. What would Peter's feelings have been in these moments? Empty tomb. Astonishment, I'm thinking. I think there was a lot of hope that began surging back into his story, don't you? At the same time that he's overjoyed, I think he's still grappling with the weight of his own failures. And, and this is where I want us to ponder for you know, a little bit more. It's so easy to bypass some of these details in Peter's story because we know how it ends and we're like, well, we've read the whole book and, you know, Peter, you'll be fine. But remember what it might have been like for, have you ever failed somebody so bad that even when it's getting better, you're wondering, what do they think about what I've done? And you're excited because it feels like it's beginning to get better, but you're like, I don't know if we've dealt with the issue yet. Can we just pretend that it didn't happen? Is that okay? Maybe you too, like Peter, have had times and seasons in life where you have like great intentions followed by failures. And then somehow, miraculously, it seems, hope comes into the picture. And, and many of us, when we're normal human beings, we're like, can we just not deal with what happened and just pretend it didn't happen and then just carry on? But that doesn't really fix everything. So I think Peter's living in this moment of like astonishment, hope, joy, and then grappling with the pain of the past and probably trying to bury some of those memories even deeper and away. Like, let's get that out of the front of mind and start pushing that back as if they won't reappear again. I'm thinking that Peter might have wondered in those moments, but what if I'm disqualified because of what I've done? I I think Peter is thrilled and uncertain, all in the same moment. He's heard that Jesus is alive. And as we know in chapter 20, as the story unfolds, he gets to behold the resurrected Jesus. Two Sundays in a row, Jesus shows up when these first followers and friends, now 11 because Judas is gone, have gathered together. And while they're gathering together, who appears miraculously among them? It's Jesus himself. And Peter remembers vividly this first Easter because in those moments, those two following Sundays, what's happening? Jesus comes and the first words of a new kingdom of a new realm breaking into the world are what? Peace. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. And then what else does Jesus do while he's with them in those moments, those first two Sundays? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter remembers peace. He remembers Holy Spirit. He remembers in the second time that Jesus shows up, Jesus has some special interaction with Thomas. For, for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't with the group the first Sunday, but he was the second, and he, he got a nickname because of it. You know it. He became Doubting Thomas because he said, unless I touch his flesh, unless I see the holes, I don't know if I can believe. And Jesus, what does he do? No doubters, no doubters, don't follow me, away you go. No, he doesn't, right? He says, 
You can look, you can touch. And I don't know if you've ever had a time and season in faith where you've doubted. And if you haven't, I don't know about your faith. <laughs> and, and I think this story is included in the Easter story for us to let you know that when there are times and seasons of doubt, Jesus is so gracious. He knows what you need. You see, there's a difference in Scripture between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I hope to believe. I want to believe. I'm just struggling in this, figuring this out. Unbelief is like, nah, I don't believe. Thomas wasn't in that category. He was, he was in doubt. And Jesus mercifully brought exactly what Thomas needed. What do you think that was like for Peter? He's, he's probably stepping back and thinking, that's really interesting to see how the Lord is addressing something deep in Thomas's soul that needs attention. I wonder if there was anything in Peter that hoped that Jesus might address the wounds in his soul too. Or, or maybe if he's a little bit like you and me, there was something in him was like, oh no, Jesus, don't come after like the painful stuff of like my past. Like, let's not touch that. Let's not talk about it. It's too painful. Turn with me now to chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples, I'm in verse 1, by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Verse 3, I'm going out to fish, says Peter. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and to the boat and that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, who Jesus loved, one more time, thank you, John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, he wrapped his outer garment around him and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not that far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and with it, fish on it. This is why maybe some of you have fish on Easter weekend, and some bread as well. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Verse 11, Simon Peter, climbing aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. There's lots of theories why that number is numbered there. We just know this. Fishermen like to keep track of what they've accomplished, right? So he does that. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I'm going to leave the text there for now. I'm going to refer to what happens next, though. If you've read through John 21, you might remember what happens following this. They settle down for breakfast, and then Jesus turns his attention to someone. Whom? Peter. And he asks a question three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Peter says, I do. Do you love me? I do. Do you love me? I do. And then the book of John concludes with Jesus turning to Peter one more and saying what? Follow Follow me. Peter says at the beginning of John 21, I'm going to go fishing. 
What, what was his career before he was following Jesus full-time as a disciple? He was a fisherman. We don't know for sure why Peter decided to go fishing, but I think we have some good reason to believe that he was still questioning if he was in with Jesus anymore. He was still wondering if he was disqualified. It's interesting, if you read the Gospel of Mark's account of the resurrection and and the details after that, the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, but it's really a collection of Peter's sermons. And when Peter is preaching, or when Peter's telling the story of the resurrection according to Mark's writing, there's an angel in the tomb that tells the first finders of its emptiness, this group of women, he says to them, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter's the one that notes this in the Gospel of Mark. Why does he do that? Like there might be a part of Peter that's like, I hope Jesus was saying, go tell the disciples, especially Peter, because he's my favorite. But there probably was a piece of Peter's heart that was like, no, when I heard that, the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter, I kind of wondered like, oh, Maybe I'm not in that category anymore of like the disciples. I'm in a a different outside category. But he still wants me to come along. And so Peter decides after the resurrection, according to John, he, he decides to go fishing. And I think it's like, listen, if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, if I'm not really in, I've got to keep the career going. So he's keeping his options going. And then Jesus invites him to breakfast. And what detail did John include? Nothing. I'm not going back into the John versus Peter thing. There's something much more exciting that lives in the story. What was Jesus doing and where was Jesus doing it? Chapter 21, verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire. Where is Jesus Welcoming Jesus, uh, welcoming Peter back into relationship by a fire. Have you ever been through something traumatic before? And you remember how your, your body takes pictures of everything going on. And then you know what it's like to feel triggered again later, later on in life where you come into something similar. And it's like, oh, I don't like this feeling because it reminds me of what I went through in the past. What's going on here? Jesus isn't just reinstating Peter and giving him a new life. He's doing it by healing a memory, bringing him to a fire. What's going through Peter's mind? The last time a fire is in the book of John, it's when Peter has denied Jesus three times. This time at a fire, Peter shows up and he sees fire, he smells fire, he sees Jesus, he's nearby. It's reminding him of his failure. And what is Jesus doing? I'm giving you an opportunity to turn the pain of the past into a victory now and for your future. Do you love me? He asks once. Do you love me? He asks twice. Do you love me? He asks three times. Why? So that he could undo his three failures with three confessions of I love you, I love you, I love you. And Peter, by God's grace, is given an opportunity for his soul to experience healing, for his heart to experience new life. 
1 Peter 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why is Peter writing that? Because he has authority, because he's had his own experience of it. I was with Jesus by a fire, and I denied him three times. And then he brought me to a fire again so I could confess and promise my love to him three times. He healed a memory. He gave me a new life. What could this mean for you and I? Insert your story there. Maybe you know what it's like to have a haunting memory in your life. I'd like to make sure that you know that Jesus still specializes in healing memories and giving new lives. I think we just need to receive like Peter did. Receive help. Receive love. Receive forgiveness. Receive new life. Last week, if you were with us in person or online, I told a story about a woman in our neighborhood several years ago named Adele, who told us about this dream chair she had always wanted. And so me and my wife, Laura, as well as our small group of friends that were part of our church, we knew Adele and we're like, we've got to find this dream chair and just give it to her as a gift. And it took us months to find the exact chair that she described. She hadn't been hinting. She wasn't hoping. She wasn't like asking for us to get this dream chair for her. It was like right to the exact detail. She described exactly this type of chair that she'd always wanted in her lifetime. After months, we found it. And last week, I shared the story of the great delight of what it was like in that moment to give Adele this chair. And she circled it for several minutes just looking at it. She's like, how did you find it? This is unbelievable. This is so amazing. This is the chair I've always wanted. And then, whoops, I had this moment where I could say, it's for you. And she's like, are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. And she sat in it and she's like, it's perfect. It's the right size. And last week, I think that story helped serve a purpose for us to understand the themes and thoughts of last week. But let me finish the story. What actually happened next crushed our hearts. Adele was so thrilled. And then all of a sudden she shot a look up at me right into my eyes and she said, I can't have this. And I said, don't be silly. I just thought it was Canadian niceness. She's like, I can't have this. I said, what do you mean you can't have this? It's, no, it's yours. We got it for you. It's a gift from God. You know, remember how we prayed for this? And just as a sort of a sign and symbol of his great love for you, he, he gave it. She's like, I, I can't have this. I can't have this. And she started citing all kinds of reasons why she believes she shouldn't have it, why she didn't deserve it. She's like, but there's so many other people in the world that have problems far worse than mine and, and somebody should help them instead. And I'm like, I, I understand that, but this is our chance to be kind to you and we want you to experience this kindness and I know you'll be kind to other people as well, but this is for you. She's like, I, I don't deserve it. I, I can't receive it. And it crushed us. I almost was like, oh, Adele, don't be silly. We're going to just drop it off at your house. But it was so difficult for her to wrap her mind around receiving it. And we learned in our ongoing friendship with her in the years that followed that it was hard for her to receive anything from anybody. There would be times I would try to help her practice receiving things without her. I'd be like, we have extra apples right now. Here's an apple. She'd be like, oh, no, I, I can't. And maybe you know what it's like at times to be like, I don't think I can receive this from somebody. I've done something whereby I just don't deserve it or I, I couldn't possibly. And it breaks our hearts, at least it broke ours, when Adele didn't receive the chair. And today, 
God offers you and I new birth, new life, fresh start, forgiveness, something you and I could never earn or deserve. He says, just receive it. And in those moments, we have a choice. I'm gonna, am I going to go back into that place of like Peter just being rehearsing failure after failure after failure and be like, I just don't deserve this. Or would I be willing to do what Peter actually did and just receive it? Would you stand with me today? This Easter, I think it comes down to two questions. Two questions. First question. Will you receive? Will you receive whatever it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he's supplying to your life today? Even if it means him touching a place of your life where there's been pain or regret. But if he's offering help, if he's offering forgiveness, would you receive it? And if that's you, I would encourage you just even in the quietness of your heart right now to say, yes, Jesus, I receive. And then I think the second question is like the one Jesus asked Peter. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? You see, if you're like me and you know what it's like to live a life where there's good intention followed by failure, I think Jesus was reordering things for Peter and he was like, let's get rid of just like good intention. Let's make this about love instead. Jesus doesn't want to know if you have good intentions right now. I think he just wants to know if you love him. So will you receive and do you love him? Let's respond in celebration together. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well done, everybody. Father, bless our church family, each household represented here in person and online. May we go in your blessing, carrying the reality of a risen Lord in our lives into our world. Father, for those who today is a restart, bless them with your good grace and your good love as we journey forward together. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and everybody said, Amen and amen. Yeah, you got it. That's right. Well, go ahead. Head outside. I know you want to meet Clay and Chantiel and Sasha and Tatiana. You want to welcome them also. Grab a churro and some coffee. Say hi to the second service people that are arriving as well. Happy Easter, everyone. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.